Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, Traveler provided an update on the status of the Keneal Bay Resort at Virgin Islands National Park, and it wasn't encouraging for those hoping to stay at the resort anytime soon. We also brought you news of an effort to reinstate the access ban on e-bikes in the national parks, detailed the effort by the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation to raise $300,000 to fund much-needed improvements on the parkway, and offered some ideas on where to get your fix of cold and snow in the national park system in the coming months. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. This week, we spend some time with Kyle Jolly, a National Park Service wildlife biologist, discussing his research into which terrestrial species makes the longest annual migration in the world. Contributing writer Kim O'Connell, fresh back from a visit to New Orleans, gives us a preview of her time at Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve. Most, if not all of us, are aware that various animal species migrate. At The Traveler, we've written about seasonal bird migrations and the hawk watch programs in various national parks that try to count the raptors that pass through seasonally. And those familiar with Yellowstone National Park no doubt have heard at least a little something of the migrations of bison in and out of the park. But what other species migrate, and how long are those migrations? Kyle Jolly, a wildlife biologist with the National Park Service who has spent a couple decades in places such as Gates of the Arctic, Noatak, Kobuk Valley, and other national park system units in northern Alaska, recently published a paper in Nature on that topic and is here today to discuss his findings with us. Welcome to The Traveler, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Yeah. So, very basic question right off the top. Why do animals migrate? Uh, there's a lot of different reasons to uh, migrate. Uh, one of the classic reasons is to get food. And so in a lot of places that have high seasonality where you have short, brief summers and long, cold winters, uh, animals will migrate to those uh, areas where there's a lot of high vegetative productivity in the summertime. You'll see that with birds. you also see it with caribou. And I, I'm guessing that um, human development uh, somehow is impacting those migrations. Are, are animals having to move further, or are they limited in the distances they can travel because of our our activities or our development? Yeah, it can work uh, either way. And so uh, human development can impact migrations. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, the development will curtail or shorten migrations. They uh, the infrastructure will act as some kind of barrier to movement, and that will constrict uh, the spaces that are available. But there are examples uh, where infrastructure has been put in, um, and the animals will have to go around or find a different spot where they can cross, and that will actually lengthen migration. So uh, it depends on the type of development and where it's placed in the migratory path. It must be having an adverse impact on some species, no? I mean, we, we've long um, heard about national parks being turned into biological islands because of uh, development surrounding the parks. 
Yeah, I, I would say that while uh, it can go either way, the vast majority of the impacts are negative um, and they lead to shortened migration paths or the extinguishment of migrations altogether. And so how does that affect the biology of these species? Um, in some cases, uh, it can be rather dramatic. Uh, places where uh, migrations have been extinguished, populations have been uh, greatly reduced. Um, in some places, uh, impacts are smaller. The uh, animals are just delayed for a few days uh, crossing a road, for example, and um, we haven't seen huge uh, biological impacts. But in general, the, the effects are rather large. They're pervasive. They're global in scale. Um, migrations have been impacted and imperiled uh, globally right now. I would imagine that's not a good thing. No, it, it isn't if, if uh, you care about uh, diversity in wildlife. And um, if you don't, you should because uh, all of the planet is interconnected and we rely upon um, the services that uh, these wildlife and wild ecosystems provide to, to humans. And along with possibly um, limiting their migration, I guess some of these developments also, um, animals are habituating to them and, and not feeling as threatened as they, as they might have been once upon a time. Is that good or bad? Well, I guess I would take a step back and, and question that premise. Um, there's uh, a, a new paper out uh, looking at the uh, oil field developments in northern Alaska, the Prudhoe Bay area. Um, and so those developments have been around for 40 plus years and um, caribou are still avoiding uh, those areas um, where the oil and gas development is strongest. And so um, I think, you know, whether or not animals habituate is, is still kind of an open question and, and um, in places, it looks like they don't. Hmm. No, that kind of surprises me, um, just because some of the, the, the photos I've seen with, um, you know, wildlife around some of those oil pipelines. And, um, you know, here in, in Utah, I mean, obviously we don't have large migrational um, corridors, um, at least not that I'm aware of. But, but you know, uh, moose have habituated with, with our subdivision and come through. And so I was just wondering if some of those larger um, developments um, might adversely um, impact the wildlife, but it doesn't, doesn't sound like they're really having that great of an impact. I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Um, you know, there's places where you will find animals uh, living in uh, developed areas, in places where there's a lot of infrastructure. Um, there tend to be you know, certain species that uh, like mixed environments. They liked um, what we call early seral stages. So um, when succession has been reset, uh, as humans like to do, they um, will chop down forests and there'll be new growth. So animals, certain animals like that, uh, like you said, moose, um, they like early successional habitats. And so they're attracted to that. Uh, another thing is, is that humans aren't very tolerant of predators. And so um, close into human development, there tends to be less predators and uh, prey species figure that out and they tend to 
uh, gravitate towards those areas. One classic example is in uh, Jasper National Park in Canada, uh, which is right next to Banff. The elk at night tend to move into town. Mm -hmm. People think that's because the wolves are afraid to go into town, and so there's lower predation risk um, closer to town. And, and so the the prey species will take advantage of that. Interesting. Interesting. You know, going back to the the 1990s, um, there's been an effort uh, called the Yellowstone to Yukon effort to, to basically, I guess, secure a migrational corridor from Yellowstone National Park north to the Yukon. Um, has that been successful? Um, you know, my parks are at the very northern edge of that. Uh, the ones that I work in, uh, like Gates of the Arctic, uh, is in the Brooks Range, the central Brooks Range, and the Brooks Range is the northern extension of the Rocky Mountains. Um, you know, my understanding of the initiative is that uh, it's a very worthy cause, but uh, it hasn't had um, dramatic success at this point. Um, another thing is is that you have to look at migrational routes. A lot of animals don't migrate um, north-south along the spine of, of the continent, the, you know, along the Rockies. A lot of them will uh, utilize the higher elevations uh, at one season and then drop down during another season. And so the, the migration um, doesn't kind of run north-south. It'll kind of run uh, up elevation and down elevation or east and west, depending on the the flow of the mountains. Um, but one thing, you know, that is very admirable about the project is that it's looking for habitat connectivity. Um, and, you know, that's one of the major um, influences on loss of biodiversity and loss of migrations is loss of large intact um, ecosystems. Yeah. Are you aware of any other similar projects to, to try and... Um make that connectivity over over such a large distance i mean with with again um development around parks creating um biological islands or or even with climate change and the need for for flora and fauna to migrate um are are we seeing more attention being placed on that connectivity oh certainly we've seen uh more attention uh, i think the yukon to uh, yellowstone initiative uh has kind of taken it to the next level. It's a, a much bigger scale project. We, I think we've seen it at, at smaller scales. And, you know, you can, uh, you know, look at it at the very fine scale. You know, we've put in underpasses and overpasses for a variety of wildlife species uh, to connect habitats so they, they don't get um, run over uh, as they're crossing highways and things like that. And so, you know, it's just a matter of scale, but the the same goal of, you know, connecting those habitats so wildlife can roam freely. Yeah, and I guess one of those efforts is being propelled by uh, the Wildlands Network. Um, I know in the, the East Coast, they've been working to try and um, create that connectivity um, through the Appalachian Range down south. And I think they've got some other locations in the in the country as well. Are you familiar with their efforts? Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with the the project. I, I don't get to the East Coast very much. Um, most of my work's uh, focused up in Alaska, in northern Alaska. But um, yeah, I'm familiar with that organization, and um, you know that is definitely one of their goals is to try and rewild places that um, have been 
affected by human development and try and connect those wild spaces so animals have a place to go. And, you know, that's especially true in uh, a changing climate. Um, those connectivity, that connectivity will be important for animals to um, adapt to um, the changing climate. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, here in uh, uh, the continental United, the lower 48 um, states, um, it, it's made tougher by uh, all the infrastructure we've put in, whether it's uh, um, cities or, or highways or railroad tracks. Definitely. And, you know, that's kind of one of the, the big differences between the, the lower 48 states and, and Alaska is that in the lower 48, um, I think of places like Wyoming and Colorado, where um, they're spending, you know, five, six million dollars on an overpass to try and restore that connectivity, where in Alaska and in northern Alaska especially, um, that connectivity exists. And, um, you know, we're looking at proposals for development. And so we have an opportunity to be proactive and, you know, identify where those migration corridors are and put in mitigation um, measures before the impacts arrive. We're talking today with Kyle Jolly, a National Park Service wildlife biologist who recently published a paper on the topic of uh, terrestrial animal migrations. And we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. So Kyle, in your paper, I believe you pointed out that uh, caribou and reindeer have the longest terrestrial migrations in the world. Yeah, they're, um, most people don't know this, but uh, caribou and reindeer are actually the same species. Caribou are uh, found in North America, and ca uh, reindeer are found in uh, Europe and Asia, uh, but they're the same species, and they can interbreed freely. 
Um, but yeah, those that species, both caribou and reindeer, had the longest terrestrial migrations on the planet, uh, with a number of populations migrating um, 1,200 to 1,350 kilometers in a year. Wow. And what, what drives the length of those migrations? Primarily, it's driven by seasonality. So a lot of the animals will migrate in a generally north direction um, to have their calves, and the, calf, the calving is uh, timed with uh, a flush of new nutritious uh, growth. Uh, oftentimes, it's uh, tussock tundra, Areophorum, uh, is the genus. It's a, a grass species that has a lot of protein, um, which uh, is very important for uh, females who are nursing uh, newborn calves. So are these um, migrations stretching out, if you will, because of climate change? Any any ideas on that? Um, no, I would think uh, we're seeing a little bit of the opposite. Um, we're seeing one herd that I study the most is the, the Western Arctic herd, and that's in northwest Alaska. Uh, it's the largest caribou herd in the country and one of the largest in the continent and, and on the planet. Um, th- that herd the last couple of years has actually seen uh, less and less animals migrate. Hmm. And we're, we're not exactly sure why that is, but one hypothesis is that the animals are uh, benefiting from a longer growing season due to climate change. And so they actually get in better condition and don't uh, feel the need to, to migrate as much. And so in a typical year, we probably saw maybe 15% of animals uh, not migrate in the traditional uh, manner south uh, to their wintering grounds. Um, so that was pretty common, you know, about that about that many, about 15%. Uh, two years ago, we had about 50% of the animals not migrate, and last year we had 80% of the animals not migrate. So, wow. uh, yeah, quite a, quite a bit of change. Yeah. Now, as you, you might be aware, there, there recently was a, a paper coming out of Yellowstone National Park and how the, the bison up there um, kind of control spring migration by, by their grazing habitats. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll migrate a certain distance and then they'll kind of hunker down in one area and, and keep the green up, greening up, so to speak. Um, is that something that you're seeing with uh, the caribou? So the caribou are so far north that uh, the spring migration actually occurs prior to green up. And so they're uh, oftentimes migrating on snow or just brown ground that hasn't greened up yet. And so um, migration is, is pre-green up. They're not, they're not surfing a, a green wave per se of uh, emergent vegetation. They're uh, migrating in anticipation of uh, good forage. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, ungulates such as caribou and reindeer aren't the only um, migrational species out there. Um, You've looked at wolves as well, haven't you? So part of our paper uh, was to figure out which ones were the longest. And so one of the things that we did was we looked at existing literature. um, And so there was one study out of the Northwest Territories that that looked at uh, a group of wolves and they classify them as migratory. Um, and so they would um, give birth at their dens, and then they would, uh, in the winter, they would chase caribou 
herds around. And so they classified them as uh, migratory. Um, I, I think that opens up a lot of questions on, on how to define migration. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe that's a different topic. Yeah, yeah, because I know here in uh, in in the lower states, um, it's probably more dispersers than than migration with wolves. I know there was that one wolf from the Yellowstone area, I think, outside in the Cody area, that showed up on the north rim of the Grand Canyon National Park a few years ago, and that was probably more dispersal than uh, migration. Yeah, yeah, and so that's what you typically see, and the wolves are generally thought of as to be territorial. So they, you know, they have that den and then they defend an uh, an area around it. Um, So that's kind of the classic view. Um, And then you have younger, typically younger animals that are are not fitting in or want to start off on their own and they can disperse very long distances um, in any direction away from the den and start up, uh, you know, a new pack and a new territory. Um, But, um, yeah, whether or not, I mean, in Alaska, we do have packs that uh, den in a certain spot and then uh, follow caribou around. It may be to the southeast. It might be to the southwest. It, you know, it could be any direction. And then they'll come back to their den. And so most people think of migration as discrete movements from one seasonal area to another seasonal area. And for caribou, um, generally, that's a calving area in uh, what we call spring, but um, often in the north, it's, you know, the first week of June. Um, and then they'll generally trend south and find a place to overwinter, um, and then they'll come back to their calving area, and that's their migration. If you think of it similarly for wolves, they're at that same den site, and they have even more fidelity than caribou, caribou calve in a a calving grounds, but uh, that specific location can bounce around from year to year. Wolves uh, very often will den in the exact same den site, um, so they actually can have higher fidelity to their birthing area. And then, you know, the the caribou will winter in different areas from year to year, so that's varying. And that's, you know, the wolves where they're spending their winters if they're chasing caribou will depend on where the caribou are. So they have about the same amount of fidelity to their wintering area. So um, it gets complicated, but I mean, there is an argument to make that, you know, some wolves are migratory depending on your definition. Yeah. Yeah. Now going back to the the Western Arctic caribou herd, um, you, you mentioned that there's been a movement, so to speak, to um, fewer and fewer um, animals migrating, I believe you said. Is is it a, a risk of losing that migrational behavior, the the patterns, the, the um, instinctive uh, knowledge that, hey, it's it's time for us to move to, to, to better um, forage or whatnot? I think the risk is there. I'm not sure how large it is at this point. Uh, the, the herd itself uh, is located in the most remote remote portion of uh, North America. Uh, It's the furthest, the calving grounds are the furthest that you can get from a road or a village in North America. So it's an incredibly remote area. So I mentioned that um, two two years ago, only 50% of the animals migrated, then last year was 80% um, didn't migrate. Um, This year we had uh, quite a few migrate 
but not uh, as many as 85%, which was kind of the average uh, in a normal year. So, you know, one thing um, when you study caribou is you'll note that there's just an extreme amount of variation from year to year, um, what the herd does, but also what individuals do. Hmm. Um, so at this point, I, I, I don't think that um, we're in danger of, of losing that migration at, at this point. But I think, you know, you know, thinking out 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, those things need to be seriously considered in the face of climate change, in the face of um, just a, a slew of development proposals in the region. Yeah, yeah. Those migrations must be phenomenal to watch. I mean, I've seen some still photos of uh, the, the caribou, whether it's uh, crossing the terrestrial landscape or, or swimming down a river or crossing a river, and just the, the, the vast number of animals um, traveling together is just, just has to be incredible to watch. It is. I'm, I'm a very lucky person uh, to have the job that I do and to see what I get to see. Um, one of the places that we work is in Kobuk Valley National Park, and uh, it's been the home of uh, caribou migration for 10,000 years. There's an archaeological site there that's uh, dated um, hunting of caribou there back that far. Um, and there'll be times, the river's probably a quarter mile wide at that point, and there'll be times where you have several hundred animals on the shore you'll have caribou nose to tail all the way across the river and then a, you know a couple hundred more piled up on the on the south bank as they're migrating so it's definitely a, a wildlife spectacle uh that is on par with anything on the globe yeah now your study of course focused on terrestrial migrations have you looked at all at the migrations that various whale species have made um, I, I, I'm just limited to uh, terrestrial mammals. That's that's what I study. I'm I'm familiar with whale migrations, and yeah, yeah, they're much much longer. Um, avian migrations are are much longer than terrestrial migrations, um, but that's uh, my field of expertise is terrestrial wildlife. Yeah, yeah. So, is there another uh, paper in the works um, beyond this one? Uh, yeah, I, I try and keep pretty busy. Um, we've got a lot of uh, different uh, papers that we're working on. We're actually uh, hoping to get one out uh, in the next couple of weeks that's looking at uh, the timing of spring migration. And we looked at caribou herds from uh, just west of Hudson Bay all the way out to the Chukchi Sea, which is uh, where the Western Arctic herd resides, all the way out in the farthest northwest corner of North America. And so um, I think that'll be a really interesting paper. Um, there's a lot of synchronicity um, between the herds, even though they're separated by thousands of miles. So I think that will be uh, pretty interesting to a lot of people. Yeah, no, definitely sounds like uh, something to look forward to. We've been talking today with uh, Kyle Jolly, a wildlife biologist with the National Park Service, who has uh, recently published a paper on terrestrial species migrations. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us today. It sounds like fascinating work, and uh, wish wish I could join you on the ground someday. But uh, <laughs> thanks again for your work, and look forward to your next paper. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. 
That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, non-profit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. There is such incredible diversity in the national park system. Landscape parks such as Glacier and Denali National Parks, national seashores and lakeshores, historical and cultural parks, and national battlefields and military parks. Trying to take it all in can require a lifetime, but exploring the different settings of the national park system can broaden your understanding of the United States and introduce you to many different and at times surprising settings. Contributing writer Kim O'Connell recently left her Arlington, Virginia home behind for a trip to Bayou Country. She headed far south in Louisiana to Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve and joins us today to regale us with what she found. Thanks for joining us, Kim. Thanks, Kurt. It's great to be here. You know, that must have been an incredible transformation for you, going from the Appalachians to Bayou Country. It really was. It was actually my first ever trip to Louisiana and New Orleans. So I, you know, had heard about this storied city and Mardi Gras my whole life, but I still didn't really know what to expect. And it really was just as culturally rich and naturally rich as I expected, and even more so. It was just a really heady experience um, and really filled my mind and my eyes with lots of things to think about. It was a really fascinating ex- experience. It must have been really tough to decide where to go or, or, or how many weeks <laughs> you need to stay there. I mean, you've got the, the natural settings in the Bataria Preserve. You've got um, you know downtown New Orleans with the Jazz Park. Um, you got all the rich foods. I mean, how, how did you plan your trip? Well, the first thing I did was head for the French Quarter. Um, I actually had an Airbnb not too far outside the French Quarter. Um, so I thought, well, that I've got to start there. I've got to get my coffee and beignets and see what all the fuss is about in downtown New Orleans and see the wonderful architecture with the, uh, you know, the cast iron um, balcony railings and just kind of soak that up a bit. But being uh, the national park buff that I am, it wasn't too long before I felt like I had to sort of get out of the city and, and see what the, what, what coastal Louisiana had to offer because knowing, you know, from afar, what it had gone through with, you know, Hurricane Katrina, et cetera, and just being kind of that swampy environment, I really had to see it for myself. And of course, we have swamps here in Virginia, 
um, but but not on the scale of coastal Louisiana. So it was really um, exciting for me to head down to the swamp and and head down to the Barataria Preserve uh, part of Jean Lafitte, which was just really fascinating. Now, if somebody is staying in in downtown New Orleans, the French Quarter, how how long does it take to get to the Bataria Reserve Preserve? Yes, it took me about uh, 45 minutes by car, I believe, but it was a fairly easy drive, you know. So New Orleans, as far as I can tell, is not as sprawling a city as what I'm used to in the mid-Atlantic northeast region. So you kind of get out of town fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of on these really flat roads where you really can understand the the landscape of uh, southern Louisiana. It's really flat, low country, and you... It's not too long outside of the city of New Orleans that you're kind of surrounded by lush nature and getting into more of the the swampy marshlands. And it's absolutely fascinating. Now, you mentioned that uh, you do have swamps in uh, Virginia of sorts, but um, to the best of my knowledge, they don't have any alligators or crocodiles in them, do they? I don't think so. I mean, there might be some alligators in the Great Dismal Swamp, um, but I, you know, I'm not sure about that. At least not to the extent. What I learned uh, being down in New Orleans is there are some two million wild alligators living in Louisiana, which is the most of any U.S. state. So, and even kind of having that in my mind that there are alligators down there still did not quite prepare me for uh, encountering one on the trail, which I did. <laughs> yeah, that catch your attention. It did. I'm used to being afraid of black bears in Shenandoah. And um, so this was quite a different experience. But the alligator was fairly small by uh, Louisiana standards, I'm told, um, and was very tame and just kind of hung out on the side of the trail. And I kept moving. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Bataria um, is sort of a natural window into the past, isn't it? I mean, it, by that I mean it's this is what most of coastal Louisiana used to look like. That's absolutely right, and that's a really wonderful way to put it, actually, because what I came to understand being down there, which I didn't really understand, was just how much the levying of the Mississippi River has affected the natural resources down there. And this is something that has been done for a hundred years to try and control the waterway and protect, you know, property from flooding and all kinds of things. And there are, you know, understandable reasons why that process was started, but has, it has really altered the hydrology, the natural hydrology of the area. And as a result, it's, it's causing some um, problems with natural resources. They're losing land down there. It's sinking through a process called subsidence. Um, Of course, with rising sea levels, there's, you know, um, the landscape's really changing on on the edge of Louisiana there um, with sea level rise. So to be in that preserve is is to grasp a sense of what the place used to look like before all that engineering came into place. And it's beautiful. Is, Is the preserve at risk because of the subsidence? Well, you know, I think it's at risk to the extent that the whole coast is at at risk. Um, The Park Service itself, as far as I can tell, is trying to engage in some efforts to protect the park. And those resources, they they have different projects going, such as to elevate the trails through boardwalks to protect the landscape. And there's been a lot of um, channeling and canal building in the area. And there's some efforts and grant projects afoot to reclaim some of 
the canal projects to restore more natural hydrology to the region. Hmm. So my sense is that the Park Service is a leader down there and trying to protect those um, swamplands from climate change and other issues. But whether they can kind of keep up with the threat, you know, remains to be seen. Yeah. Now, of course, um, Jean Lafitte, the historical park, offers more than a walk through the bayou, doesn't it? Right. What I found fascinating, I to my lack of knowledge about the park before I went there is I thought it was just kind of one park, like you're used to seeing at some other places, but it's actually kind of an umbrella for six sites, six very different sites, because I think there's just so much to protect and interpret in New Orleans. And this is how the park service is handling it down there. So you have the the marshy preserve there, but then you also have the, the Chalmette unit, which uh, protects um, both the national battlefield, which is where, um, the Battle of New Orleans took place during the War of 1812. And that's a really interesting battlefield site. I'm, again, very used to Civil War battlefields here in Virginia. So it was really interesting to go to a site that, that interprets the, the War of 1812. There's a national cemetery there that was also very beautiful and, and serene. And then there's also um, a few cultural centers. There's one in the French Quarter, and then there's a few scattered around um, kind of the greater New Orleans area that are devoted to various aspects of Cajun culture. So there's just a lot going on there that's under the umbrella of Jean Lafitte. It's really fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot. How long were you down there? I was just there for a week, which felt very short. So there's a lot of eating and drinking to be done in New Orleans also. So (laughs) So I've heard. So I've heard. (laughs) Now with um, um, Mardi Gras season coming up and uh, um, whatnot, New Year's, New Year's Eve, if somebody were to go to New Orleans for just a, a three or four day stay and they wanted to get out into the historical park, what would you recommend they do? Well, I think both the Barataria Preserve and the, the Chalmette units are very accessible from downtown New Orleans. And you could do each of those in a day. Um, the, the preserve actually has some really well-defined trails, but you can kind of pick and choose, you know, how much of the trails you want to hike. And what I find particularly interesting about the preserve is that they, in, they have a section that's hardwood forest, they have a section that's swamp, and then they have a section that's marsh. And so you get to move in a relatively short space, you get to move from these three different natural environments fairly quickly. So you get a great snapshot in a relatively small space of the natural resources in the area. And that's kind of in one direction and then um, kind of east, what they call downriver uh, from downtown is where the Chalmette unit is. And both the National Battlefield and the National Cemetery are directly next to each other. So you can do both of those in, in one trip. So I think, they're both quite accessible to do in a, in a weekend, in addition to spending some time down in the French Quarter. Yeah, it all sounds very fascinating, and uh, I'm definitely jealous. Definitely have to put it onto my to-do list. We've been talking today with uh, contributing writer Kim O'Connell, who was able to spend a, a week in New Orleans and visit John Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve. And uh, she'll have a story for uh, Traveler readers a little later this month. Thanks so much for giving us a, a little look into it, Kim. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be discussing the problem of invasive species in the parks. While it's our small team at National Parks Traveler that finds sources, fact-checks information, writes, edits, and photographs the stories you hear and read on The Traveler, 
it wouldn't be possible without the support of our readers and listeners. We have big plans for 2020, and we need your help to continue making our work possible. I hope you share our belief and passion for independent journalism focused on national parks and protected areas, and hope you will consider a gift to help us broaden that coverage. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.